The opinions expressed on this program are solely those of its hosts, guests, or callers, and do not necessarily represent the opinions of WTBR-FM, its management, other producers, or sponsors. Headquarters to all units. Headquarters to all units. All units, stand by for On Patrol with the PPD, airing now on WTBR 89.7 FM. Good morning. Thank you for tuning in to another new live episode of On Patrol with the PPD here on WTBR 89.7 FM, Pittsfield Community Radio. Also simulcast on Pittsfield Community Television and available on all your popular podcast platforms. Today is Friday, May 5th, 2023. My name is Mike Wynn. I am one of the co-hosts of this sometimes weekly radio show. I'm also the chief of police here in the city of Pittsfield for about another 45 days. Uh, I'm joined in studio this morning by Lieutenant Matt Hill, sound engineer extraordinaire. Good morning, Lieutenant. Good morning, Chief. And we have a special guest joining us this morning, but before I introduce our guest, let's get a check of the weather and uh, introduce a couple news stories, and then we'll go to the show. Here's your WTBR forecast from BerkshireWeather.com for Friday, May 5th. Greetings. Today, mostly cloudy. A high of 57 with drizzle. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low of 37. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high of 66. That's your latest WTBR forecast. For more of the forecast notification, go to BerkshireWeather.com. I'm Cape Klein for WTBR, and I hope you all have an amazing day. Cheers, everyone! Welcome back. Just another, uh, a quick couple of news articles. One of note, uh, specifically PPD related, um, coming from the January fatal motor vehicle pedestrian uh, crash that occurred on West Street. Uh, accident reconstructionist, crash reconstructionist within the traffic unit finished their investigation. Charges were filed, and the uh, driver has been arraigned. Charges uh, for one count of negligent motor vehicle homicide. That case will proceed to trial shortly. Uh, not in this current news cycle, but reported in the last week. Um, we had some good media coverage on the department's law enforcement jujitsu program. Over the course of the 18 months that we've been in that program, we've had 29 different police officers participate in some capacity. We had around a solid dozen that are training regularly, and we're very excited that three of our participants have earned their blue belts. It's a, an amazing accomplishment. And on a happy note, uh, kick off the summer season the carnival is back uh and i'm particularly pleased that it's back and being held in another jurisdiction which means there's no special events over time uh, for the department related to that event so we can attend but not have to cover and uh that's something that police officers can smile about uh sorry for our brothers and sisters to the north that are going to have to cover that one uh it's your turn tag you're it so that's enough of the news, and uh, I'm pleased to introduce our guest this morning. Joining us in studio this morning is Chaplain Ron Ringo. Uh, Chaplain Ringo is uh, one of one of the members of the department's chaplaincy program, and he's got a particularly interesting story about how he came to us. So good morning, Ron, and welcome. Good morning, sir. How are you today? I'm doing great. So when we have someone in studio uh, that supports the department or works with the department, we kind of like to start with a little background. So just tell us a little bit about yourself. Who are you? Where are you from? Wow. Um, 
Originally, I'm from California. Grew up in the Los Angeles area, just north of L.A., Simi Valley. And um, did the normal thing that many young men do. I went in the military at the tail end of Vietnam. Um, didn't have to go. But did that uh, because I wanted to be a police officer back in the day. And uh, did that for a few years. And then afterwards, I became a deputy sheriff in California and a police officer for the local Simi Valley Police Department. Did that for about 10 years. Uh, also while being in the military reserves. And then continued to grow and progress, get schooling and do other things. And then when uh, Desert Storm hit, I was out here in the Berkshires and uh, doing some work with elder services and other things. And then decided I wanted to go back in the military to help support the, the military that I'd been so fond of and went back in as a chaplain. And did another 20 years as a Navy Marine Corps chaplain. So let's go back a little bit. So you, you knew you wanted to be a police officer from a very young age. Yeah. Did you always want to be a police officer? Yeah, you know, when you're going to high school and they do those career things, you know, trying to figure out what you want to do when you grow up. I knew that I felt the calling that I wanted to be a police officer. I had two grandfathers that were police officers, okay. and I think that might have been embedded in me a little bit. So, so in order to pursue that dream, that, that ambition of becoming a police officer, as you said, you, you took a path that many people take, and you decided to go in the military. Right. Um, when you enlisted out of high school, did you go in the Marine Corps? I did. Okay. Semper Fi. Yeah. I was um, a Marine guaranteed infantry. Okay. Not military police. <laughs> no. Okay. Uh, because back in the time, they said military police was a little too hardcore yep. for civilian police departments. So I basically went advanced infantry for SWAT type training, that okay. kind of stuff. Yep. So I, I recently participated in a uh, interview with a doctoral candidate who's working on uh, a thesis on, on uh, emotional intelligence and leadership, also prior Marine Art. and law enforcement. <laughs> and uh, he, was, he was a Marine MP. And I've, I don't think when I was in my brief time in uniform, I don't think I knew any MPs. Like I knew a lot of you know, gate guards and stuff like that, but no MPs. And... Over the last maybe five years, I've found some online presence where the couple of the, the hosts are former Marine Corps MPs. And it's a fascinating, fascinating like subset of the population. As I was talking to this guy, and I said, you know, I, I've learned to think about the MPs in all branches, uh, kind of like from one of the lines from a Dra Jack Reacher book. And he's like, yeah, it's a lot like being a municipal cop, except everybody we police is a trained killer. It, which is kind of a good way to look at it. Yeah. But the Marine Corps MPs have this unique dual mission in that when they deploy in support of an infantry unit, they've, they've got prisoner handling and yeah. interrogation, but they've also got this whole like um, forward operating security element too. It's it's a fascinating um, you know segment of the, of the services. Yeah. So. Did you just do a four-year enlistment that first time? I did three years initial okay. active duty. I was a Marine recruiter for okay. a good part of that time. And then I had eight years reserve. Got it. And while I was a 
Marine Reserve, I actually did get into military police because okay. I was a civilian police officer at Got the time. It. And so, and it had changed in the 80s uh, to more of a municipal type yeah. law enforcement instead of the old, uh, you know, taking care of the drunken sailor yeah, type going thing. swinging <laughs> the batons to break up the bar yeah, fight. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it became much more taking care of the housing Keep and garrison law enforcement right like right and so pull the general over yeah and i did that when i was a sergeant staff sergeant type in the marine corps reserve so and then i was like i said i was a police officer right. so you know a decade of of law enforcement and reserve time what brought you to the berkshires i had family here okay. originally and so in the i think it was like 80 Eight eighty nine, we moved here to be near family and try something new. Um, and then Desert Storm hit ninety one, so and started that process. So then you went back in as a chaplain. What had you done between relocating to the Berkshires and and Desert Shield Desert Storm to prepare you to serve as a chaplain? What were you, what was your line of work at the time? You oh, said you were doing yeah, some stuff okay. with elder services. I had been working. Okay, so I had been a police officer, and then I had been working with elder services as a police officer to kind of transition because I was um, a social worker. I had my license in Got social it. work, and I was doing abuse and neglect type investigations, investigations. for elder services. I was also the chief of security over at Bard's College at the time. Okay when we unfortunately had yep. the major shooting. Yep. Uh, basically the first school shooting that it, got public. I wanna, I wanna pull on that thread for a minute, but I, I wanna ask you a question before I do. So um, did you get your license in social work while you were working as a police officer? I, I got it, a lot of the education during that time. Okay. And then when I moved here to Massachusetts, I tested, tested for it. the license. That's incredibly unusual for a working police officer to study social work. Yeah. Well, it wasn't only social work. It was also religious studies. Okay. So I, I was going to Cal State. Got it. And I got a degree in religious studies, humanities. I guarantee you were the only cop in any of those classes. Yeah, probably so. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so you brought up um, Simon's Rock of Bard. Who, they've been in the news a lot lately. I feel really bad for them. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting because... Uh, Captain Traver I'm sorry, Captain Dolly and I took a meeting maybe three weeks ago, two, three weeks ago, with a couple of women who are from, well, actually one uh, works down here, but they're, they're from North County, and they're involved in a um, program. I can't remember. I don't think it's Stop Handgun Violence, but it's a, it's a national organization about uh, gun violence, and they take an unusual approach in that they don't really take a position on gun ownership and Second Amendment. They're just advocating for safe and secure storage. And so they partner with school districts to provide educational materials and, in some cases, uh, gun locks. And so they wanted to know if you know we would partner with them. They had some stuff. Uh, they had already entered into agreement with the Pittsfield Public Schools. And so neither of them are from Berkshire County. Mm. And so they're sitting across the table from me. And uh, one of them says, you know, you know, God forbid, with everything in the news, you know, we've never had a school shooting here and we don't want there to be one. And I stopped them and said, I'm sorry. Yes, we have. And they were like, what? And I was like, yeah, Simon's Rock was before Columbine. By several years, they had no idea. So, yeah. yeah. 
it it wasn't really known back then right. and it really yeah. was probably one of the first that my, my former training partner and i were tasked with um developing the first formal active shooter active killer protocols and the training to go with it yeah. here and we did it delivered the training throughout the county and i made the horrible mistake at a training at monument mountain of saying something like you know don't think it can't happen here because there was first responders who had been there in my class and oh. they called me right out and rightfully so right it was yeah. incredibly insensitive for me to say that yeah. but yeah it just wasn't on the national conscious yeah it was a very sad situation absolutely um so let's let's know desert shield desert storm comes up and you decide you're going to continue your service so you go back in uniform yeah you go overseas as a chaplain as a chaplain okay so we're caught up there what when you went back overseas as a chaplain what was that like well, actually, I didn't end up overseas right away. Okay, you know they go. You have to go through chaplain boot camp. Got you know, it. You go okay. through just like doctors and any other officer. You have to go through a orientation boot camp type thing. Having been a marine, it wasn't that big a deal for me. But you're also getting trained on how the military wants you to be performing so as. Did a chaplain. you have to go to officer candidate school as part of that pipeline? It, it was a modified one okay. for doctors and or chaplains. Was it in Newport? It was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and so you go through that, and then you get your assignment. My first assignment was on the waterfront in Norfolk. Uh, <laughs> That's a great place to be. Yeah. <laughs> Getting ready to deploy. Yeah, and so I ship-hopped and was relief pitcher for many ships on the waterfront. I okay. was in, char in charge of the logistic <coughs> logistics group there in, in Norfolk. And so did that, and then... Um, my next assignment was back where I started as a young Marine at Camp Pendleton as the command chaplain at the School of Infantry. That can't be easy. <laughs> Not 20 years later. <laughs> no. And I, I would imagine, you know, knowing what we know now about just crisis, crisis counseling and trauma, you got a bunch of aggressive, hard-charging young jarheads who just came out of boot camp yeah and now they're getting spun up in soi there's got to be a lot of like complicated emotions going on for those guys yeah and the thing that what happens in in you go to boot camp and you get some infantry training yeah. in boot camp and then advanced infantry school is the school of infantry <laughs> and so you're doing that and a lot of young people in general but i had young marines, marines. you know Life still goes on, so family issues are happening, just like on police departments. Yep. You know, family issues are happening in the background, and so I'd get a young Marine coming from, oh, Alabama, and he'd be coming. Hey, Chaplain, I gotta go home. My mom's having this problem, that problem. She's trying to take care of my siblings. She's a single mom. This or that, and I'd say, okay, well, what we need to do is make sure you're strong and do, able to do the things you're doing. Well, I just don't feel like myself anymore. And the number one thing that would normally happen is, okay, well, did you go to church or anything back home? Yeah, we used to go to church on the corner with Grandma all the time. Okay. Have you been to church at Lately. all since you've been in the Marine Corps? Well, no. Sunday's the only day we got off. So, and so, so you can get square your gear away yeah, and get and in that. Get out in town a little yeah. bit. I say, okay, well, it's like lopping off a piece of yourself. Yep. You've been doing that for 20 years, and now all of a sudden you stop. It, it's a part of you that's missing. 
Start doing that. I'll help you. Unfortunately, they didn't get too much sympathy, sympathy from, from me. From the command. <laughs> well, from yeah. me, being the chaplain, because I was in their shoes at one point. Right. <laughs> and so I know, yeah, it's tough, but you can get through this, yeah. and we can help you. So, so Camp Pendleton, and how long were you at Pendleton? Uh, I think it was three years, okay. a normal three-year tour. So, And then hospital tours and um, when Desert or when 9-11 happened, yep. I was in a residency program at Portsmouth Naval Hospital. So you were still in? Oh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, I did 20 years from yeah. 93 to 2011. Yeah. So. Um, and then, so I was sitting there on the day 9-11 happened <clears throat> in my office before I was making rounds and a fellow chaplain was in the office next to me and he goes, did you hear what's going on? I go, no, what? I've been here since six o'clock. <laughs> and <clears throat> so we went into the next section of the building, which was a sleep program there. And they had a TV running and we, the first tower had already been hit and we saw the that's second that's tower be hit while we were standing there so we went into my office and said things have just changed i i've been listening to a lot of podcasts with veterans um you know former um a lot of special operations guys and many of them were active duty pre 9-11 and it's interesting because they all tell the story about where they were on that day and what their immediate reaction was, and they thought they were going to be deployed. They called and asked to be deployed. Yeah. But one of the interesting things, and I think you know, we all know where we were on that day, uh, but I, I've talked to a lot of civilians, non-military, non-law enforcement, and their response when the second plane hit was not the same as ours, because I remember watching the second plane hit, and I immediately knew we'd been attacked by some foreign influence. Right. A lot of people, you know, the... If you're not in that mindset, a lot of people are like, oh, there's got to be a radar malfunction or there's equipment malfunction. This is a horrific accident. No. If, if you spend your life looking for threats, it was painfully obvious that that was deliberate at that moment. It couldn't have been an accident. Right. Um, and so I can't imagine what it would have. I, I, was a, I was a police officer by that time, so my, my brief time in the military was long in the past. I can't imagine what it must have been like to be on active duty in uniform watching that happen because you know there's going to be a response and you're going to be part of it yeah the residency program i was going through at the time we were just about ready to graduate we had been there a year and so we were getting ready for new assignments and i got tasked um to be the director of what we call Credo, which is a command religious education program at Camp Lejeune. Okay. So I was going to the heart of the Marine Corps. Right. And my son, who was also a Marine, he joined at 9-11, um, was stationed there. So we served there together. And his unit was deployed, and it basically took a year and a half or so before we actually... 2003 was when the war kicked off, and, kicked rest, off. Right. and my son was there the first day of the war in Anazaria. But I was tasked to design a warrior transition program to help the Marines come home a little healthier. And I brought home the first two waves of Marines 
floated home with them and ship hopped and presented this program. Um, having been at the tail end of Vietnam, a lot of my buddies, when I was a young Marine, I saw what they went through coming home. When there wasn't a transition. Right. And the things they had to go through. I had been a chaplain um, for about almost 10 years at that point, And I had done a couple of major disasters, a major fire that had taken some lives at Camp Pendleton and a flight 261 crash off of Port Wainimi, California. I had been the chaplain in charge of uh, defusing and debriefing our coasties and stuff coming out of that, taking care of that. So we utilized mm -hmm. a lot of that critical incident stress management programming to help transition our Marines coming back. So when you described transition of the Marines coming back, you said you floated home with the two the first two waves of Marines. Right. They, they sailed back on their amphibs. Yeah, we met in the Gulf, and I got dropped off on yeah. the ships. Yeah, and yeah. so I, I, I want to examine this a little bit, too, because in my most recent studies, uh, there's, a, there's a lot of discussion about this. So for our viewers and listeners, we, we as a nation and, you know, as uniform service, we learned a lot of valuable but unfortunate lessons post-Vietnam. And one of the things, and there's a growing body of research on this, is if you compare the veterans who came back from World War II and to a lesser extent from Korea, a couple of different things occurred. One was the importance of unit cohesion. They deployed as a unit, they fought as a unit, they came home as a unit, mm -hmm. and they came home slowly. So they had a chance to debrief, to be around that. Yeah proverbial campfire with their brothers and in some cases sisters and tell the stories and and get it off of their chests and readjust right vietnam we changed the way we deployed and for the first time we used replacements and so you didn't deploy well you may have deployed with a unit but when you got out of whatever your advanced school was you deployed as an individual to replace a casualty in the unit and your first day i can't remember who it was i think it was john Kerry. His first day as a lieutenant in Vietnam, he checked into his unit and immediately got into a firefight. Like there was just no transition. Yeah. And on the tail end, the same thing. When your tour was up, you left at the end of your rotation, it was 13 months, right. and you flew home alone. There's no downtime, there's no debriefing time. Right. And the results, what happened to our veteran community because of those two changes was horrifying. And it, we should never, ever, ever do that again. Right. Um, but the, the lessons learned were able to be put in place when you built a program because they were going to float back deliberately. And the units that did fly back went into isolation for a period of time when they came back so that they could go through this transition phase yeah. with trained people to tell the stories and you know celebrate the victories and, and mourn the tragedies and get back to something resembling normalcy. Yeah. There's a, a book by Dr. Shea called Achilles to Vietnam. And back in the Roman days, they actually would do the same thing. They would, after a battle, they would go up into the mountains and debrief, defuse. Sit around the fire. Right. Tell, tell the their stories. stories. Get it out. Get the yuck factor out yep. is what I called it. Before they came home to their family and children, <clears throat> which would help them in that transition 
we wanted to do something similar, having seen what happened in Vietnam era. We called it combat to Kmart. You know, they would fly home and be right there. However, that wasn't healthy, you know. And during Vietnam, they weren't welcomed home. Right. And so that that's something that we've had to work on. But for this warrior transition of our veterans coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan, we wanted something different. Not all of our Marines floated home, but those who did have that opportunity to process while they're on the ship. The first few waves, we had less post-traumatic stress issues because we talked about it. That's what I did in the workshop. I would go to the mess deck, have everybody come, and we would. I would actually capture photos that they took because nowadays everybody, everybody has a phone and or a camera. Camera, digital cameras were popular. And so I would grab their pictures, put it to some Jimi Hendrix music, and say, "Okay, this is what you guys went through." You know, non-graphic, but. Yeah just where they would deploy and stuff. And tell me about it. You know, what would you want those Marines that are that are coming in the next unit to know? What to bring, not to bring. What to do, not to do. What do you want when you go home? How did you want to have family receive you? Do you want everybody and their aunt and uncle there? Or do you just want to be with your significant with other and children, children for a few days before you have everybody and their brother there? Make sure you know what you want. Share that with your family so that it can be a good experience when you come. And the same thing happens with the law enforcement and first responders. Because of the work that we do in, in the community, it's important that first responders have that opportunity to have healthy downtime as well. And to process. And to process it. So one of the things I've learned in, in my career in law enforcement and in my brief studies about psychology and trauma is that in I don't want to draw a comparison between military and combat and law enforcement because they're 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 dissimilar but one of the unique things about first responders police fire and I think probably even worse EMS yeah. is that if supervisors first line supervisors don't build in the opportunities for that kind of quick emotional deep download that processing just go call to call to call to call and so you know you can be nine hours into an eight hour shift you've seen five six seven things that need to be processed and you just want to get out of there and so now you go home and you're carrying that and you're either going to unload it onto your family which isn't fair to them or you're going to seal it up which isn't fair to you. <laughs> or you self-medicate, which is another right. unfortunate issue that sometimes develops. So that's, we're, we're, no, we're coming up on a half hour here, and we're, we're touching on, on our introduction to one another. So I think in the next couple minutes um, before we shift to your role as a chaplain, we'll just kind of talk about public safety chaplaincy in general. Uh, and so, um, you know, for most of our viewers and listeners, I think some might be surprised that the department, not just not just our department, uh, PFD, same way, uh, that we have chaplaincy programs. And prior to 2007, in the Pittsfield Police Department, our chaplaincy program was kind of loose and informal. You know, essentially, um, 
the chief, former chief, Chief Yellow, he had a relationship with some clergy from the community, and they kind of had an informal agreement that if the chief called, then you know, someone, some would, somebody would come. It uh, could have been Father, now Monsignor uh, Mike, or Father Gregory, or if we were having an event, they would, um, they would preside over the event and to, to, uh, offer the benediction. Um, but it, it really wasn't something that was embedded within the department. And shortly after I took command, I started exploring ways to change that. And then out of the blue, I got a letter um, from the department's first formal chaplain uh, who was Pastor Dinah Salnitis. And she had recently taken over as the uh, rector or pastor at St. Helena's Chapel in Lenox. And in her previous assignment, one of her missions, one of um, one of her practices was she had served as a public safety chaplain. And so she knew we were the bigger department in the area, and she just wrote me a letter and said, this is who I am, this is what my background is, I'm certified international police chaplain, I would like to provide services to the department. And so she came in, we met, and uh, was very impressed to the point where I started worshiping at St. Helena. It had been my church as a child. I had been away from the church for a long time, but I started worshiping at St. Helena's again. Hmm. And then, uh, you know, she kind of stepped into this role of coming in and providing some chaplaincy services. And it was kind of loose and informal at the time. But then she, uh, she answered another calling and she decided that she was going to go um, do pediatric hospice stuff wow. in trauma center over in New York. And so she left St. Helena's and, and she left us. And I was like, you know, this, we've had some success with this. I need to find a way to do this. And uh, just coincidentally, right around that same time, uh, the sheriff's office was putting on a uh, sheriff's academy, a reserve intermittent academy, or we were putting on a reserve intermittent academy to train some people for the sheriff's office. And um, Pastor Russ Moody had gone through the Reserve Intermittent Academy, and he wanted, uh, we he had uh, Officer Gaynor and I as instructors, and he decided he wanted to figure out a way to do this. So he approached us and said, can I come on board as a chaplain? And so we kind of formalized the program at that point, and then Russ had been with us for a while when, out of the blue, you contacted me. <laughs> uh, and, you know, it, if it, keeps happening then you have to kind of pay attention to that. i'm not going to say that you know god god spoke to us but there was a plan at work here because it just kept recurring and recurring so that brings us up to our half hour so we'll take a break for station identification and some psas and one more check of the weather and then we'll come back and talk to chaplain ringo about how he serves in the pittsfield police department WTBR forecast from BerkshireWeather.com for Friday, May 5th. Greetings. Today, mostly cloudy, a high of 57 with drizzle. Tonight, partly cloudy with a low of 37. Tomorrow, mostly sunny with a high of 66. That's your latest WTBR forecast. For more of the forecast and education, go to BerkshireWeather.com. I'm Steve Klein for WTBR, and I hope you all have an amazing day. Cheers, everyone!
Support for WTBR comes from Greylock Federal Credit Union, proud to support high school arts and sports programs to help our community thrive. Greylock Federal, with locations throughout the Berkshires and online at greylock.org. Missed an episode of your favorite show? Have no fear because we have podcasts. Type in wtbrfm.com forward slash podcast on your favorite browser and search for your favorite show. It's that simple. Hi, this is Officer Darren Derby with the Pittsfield Police Department. Folks, unfortunately, drug use is a driving factor for a lot of crime taking place in our city. The most prevalent crime being theft. Please, take the extra time to ensure that your belongings are safe inside your vehicle. Do not leave anything of value in plain sight. Hide your belongings. Place them in your trunk or take anything of value out of the vehicle. Always keep your vehicle locked. Don't make it easy for them. This message is brought to you by the Pittsfield Police Department in cooperation with WTBR-FM. Hello, my name is Sergeant Mark Madalena with the Pittsfield Police Department. As you know, decisions we make every day can affect us for the rest of our lives. What you may not realize is that you are 23% more likely to be involved in a collision while you are texting and driving. That means texting and driving makes you 23 times more likely to cause a crash. Every day in the United States, nine people are killed and more than 1,000 are injured as a result of a crash caused by a distracted driver. Remember, put down the phone and arrive alive. Don't text and drive. This message is brought to you by the Pittsfield Police Department in cooperation with WTBR-FM. Pittsville residents, have you heard about Code Red? It's the city's emergency alert program, and it keeps you informed on the latest updates and notifications, including but not limited to weather-related emergencies, road closures, and water main breaks. So stay connected and be informed. Text Pittsville to 99411 to enroll or visit cityofpittsfield.org to sign up. Good morning. Welcome back to another new episode of On Patrol with the PPD here on WTBR. 89.7 FM, Pittsfield Community Radio, and simulcast on Pittsfield Community Television and available on all of your popular podcast platforms. If you're just joining us, we're joined in studio this morning by Chaplain Ron Ringo. We spent the first half of the program learning about Ron's uh, upbringing and career path, and we've just about reached the point in the story where Ron started um, working with the Pittsfield Police Department. So how did you come back to the Berkshires and how did you decide to reach out for the department? Well, like many people, this uh, pandemic that we've been going through or had gone through got me thinking about where I wanted to be. And so I moved back here to the Berkshires. Um, I guess it was the summer of 21. Okay, 21. What were you doing between getting out of the Marine Corps and coming back to the Berkshires? I had been doing uh, hospice work okay. as a chaplain and then also had, had my own wellness center in Colorado Okay, for a while. So you came back to the Berkshires. Yeah. You left Colorado for the Berkshires. Yeah, Western Colorado, Telluride. That's a, there's a story there, but <laughs> that's for another time. Uh, the wife thought it was a little too dry. Got it. <laughs> so. Right, so you came back here. And uh, you've, you've already had successful career in law enforcement, and you've already had uh, highly two successful careers in the Marine Corps, and now you're running this wellness center. Uh, but that's not enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, life is evolving. <laughs> if, if you enjoy doing new things, that's what it is. And everywhere I've gone, I've tried to connect as a chaplain for a police department that I would be living in the community yeah. um, because it, it's near and dear to my heart. And so, did you do that in Telluride? I did it in the county of Montrose. Okay. 
Yeah, uh, I was with the sheriff department there. Got it. And then the city of Simi Valley, where I'd once been a police officer. So for our viewers and listeners, uh, it, what what is a police chaplain? What is a police chaplain's role? Well, you'd mentioned that, you know, we've had clergy be there and, and fill the role of a chaplain-type person in the department in the years past. Truly, a chaplain isn't meant to be there as a, oh, a, a preacher. Right. It, it really is an ecumenical spiritual advisor, somebody to help with the emotional, spiritual needs of those providing the services in the police department, but first responders. You're, you're also going to interact with whoever else might be on a scene, fire department or paramedics or ambulance drivers, whomever. So one of the interesting things about public safety chaplains, uh, and it, to some extent, I wouldn't say the same thing about our mental health co-responders, is we create the positions with one intention. In, this, in the case of chaplains, it's providing chaplaincy to members of our uniformed services. But there's unintended benefits, sure. which in the case of chaplains. So in the case of co-responders, we create the program to provide services to the community. And the unintended benefit is services to our personnel. Right. With the chaplains, it's the opposite. We create the chaplains with the intention of serving the members. And the unintended benefit is service to the community. Right. Because if you're with us and we're responding to a horrific incident and there are traumatized victims there, they're also, you know, they're not first responders, but they are in that first response. Yeah. And they have mental health and emotional and spiritual needs as well. Yeah. So it's um, it's a broader audience than, than is written into the four corners of the program. Yeah. At, I mean, the police and fire respond and take care of the things that are needed for them to do at a scene or an incident. A chaplain, if they're in the area responding would take care of whatever's needed at that time right so part of what you do is just help those that are in need unconditionally and that's the beauty of it you're not sitting in front of a pulpit or standing in front of a pulpit preaching to a particular audience you're there caring for those of any walk in life of any spiritual religious type background who might be in need and just caring for them in whatever is being presented. And it, it may just to be an understanding person to listen. Most of the time. Could be a shoulder to cry on. Yeah. Um, you know, it's so. It's the, not to tout scripture. No. <laughs> and the, the chaplaincy program has evolved over the last, call it 12 years. Uh, so our chaplains, and technically right now we have, two and a half because uh, J.D. Hebert is doing some uh, clinical observation time while he pursues his, his licensure. And so um, J.D. comes from an EMS background, uh -huh. but he picked us to do some ride time with. So our chaplains will do ride-alongs, right. come in and get up and go out with an officer. Uh, and I'm sure those conversations in the cars get pretty intense sometimes. Um, and they're confidential. And, and they're confidential. And provide services to anybody, as you said, that's on the scene that you and that officer go to. Uh, our chaplains sometimes just kind of do drop-in time and come in and hang out, 
in the station, walk, yeah. walk through the spaces. Uh, very similar to what our co-responders sometimes do when they're between calls. Uh, and then our chaplains are on call. Uh, you know, if commanders are at the scene of something and are like, this is beyond our scope and abilities to provide care. You know, we've, we've stopped the crime. We've got the bad guy. We've put the bandages on. Something's unfinished. Then we can bring a chaplain in. And, and or a co-responder to help address that but it's a it's a holistic approach to taking care of more than just the physical realities of crisis response yeah. and, and it's that's the role of a chaplain and vice the role of a pastor and, right. and even like in hospice currently i also work with hospice of western mass okay as a chaplain and so you're providing care for the patient but a lot of times you're mostly providing it for the family that are caring for their loved one who's getting close to the end. So I will, this is before um, the establishment of our, our formal chaplaincy program. Um, but many years ago, several years ago, many years ago, um, my, my grandmother was hospitalized and she was, she was, you know, essentially in hospice. She there, she was not coming out. Right. And so she had a, a a home parish in her community, and they were aware of what was happening. And it was just horrific timing. So, you know, she's, she goes into the hospital a couple of days before a holiday. And her, in her case, priest, came to see her the, the afternoon prior to her death. And so, you know, they... They prayed together and they had their time together and he left. And then just because of the, the circumstances and the timing, he was not going to be available. And so, you know, my mom calls me and she's not doing well. She's not going to make it get over here. So I get to the hospital dead at night, early morning. And unfortunately, uh, my, my grandmother passes away. Mm. And so it, the family felt strongly that they wanted a Catholic priest to administer the last rites. Right. And there wasn't one on duty in the hospital. And I'm, I, you know what, I'll, I'll readily admit it. I took advantage of the fact that I had numbers because of our role in the community and, and the established relationship we had with the clergy that were then providing services. And I didn't even hesitate. I just took out my phone and called, uh, in this case, Monsignor Mike. And he came right over. Wow. He came right over. Um, because that's you know that's the nature of that's the nature of the people who choose to do that kind of work sure and so and to this day my family is eternally grateful yeah. that um i could make that call and he could come provide that service yeah and that comfort and closure and often even the role of the chaplain is to do exactly what you did for your family is to facilitate the need yeah. you know if i have somebody who's of the catholic faith or of the jewish faith or muslim or whatever you know being a protestant chaplain i'm not able to do their religious rites and so i would facilitate and get somebody from one of those for that person all right so i can't even when did you, so you came back to pittsfield in 2021 how long after you came back to the, the area did you write me or call me? It was within a few months. Okay. Yeah. So y you wanted to be of service. That's something that you've done anywhere that you live. You've, you've tried to provide services right. to law enforcement. 
Um, why Pittsfield? Why Pittsfield? PD. PD? Yeah. Because I live here in Pittsfield, okay. and uh, I thought there would be a need with a larger department. There might be more of a need yep. uh, of the things that your officers do. Um, I know it happens. Anything can happen anywhere. Right. But I just uh, thought that it might be more of a service. Um, I'd also offered any time I bumped into any of the other chiefs that if you have any needs, here's my card. If I'd be more than willing to come assist somebody in your department if you need. So, so it's been about two years. Yeah. So how's it been? It's been good. Um, <laughs> with a little bit of transitioning going yeah. on, uh, we've been able to establish. We even have more of a uh, a role in what we are to look like and, and wear as part of the team. And uh, it, it's a great opportunity. It It's, you know, I, I know from my perspective, and I can only speak from my perspective, it, it brings me great comfort um, coming into the building and seeing one of the chaplains there. You know, it's just, I can, sometimes I can be in my office and I'll see them, you'll see you or JD or Russ arrive on the on the monitors and uh come in carrying your vest and I'm like all right you know it's it's going to be a better shift right now <laughs> um just we've got a little backup and uh it's i think it's important um i'm very proud i'm very proud of the efforts that we've made to build and expand this program uh, over the last 15 years um i'm not satisfied I, I came really, really close before Rabbi Josh left to take on a, another synagogue to recruiting him to serve as our first Jewish chaplain. And I haven't had any luck mm. since he left. And I'm really, really interested in identifying someone who might be able to serve the department in the community as a Muslim chaplain. Mm. So I, th I think we, sh we need to like do some recruitment. <laughs> or at least um, if we have people in the community that provide those services know that we can call them and count put, on them put them to, on call yeah yeah so that when we have somebody that has that specific need we know that we can call imam whomever yep. or uh rabbi right. whoever so. it's a work in progress yeah it is <laughs> it, it's caring for those that care for others and that is a very rewarding position uh that's what i've loved about being a chaplain in the military you're there for everybody from the right. private to the general and everyone in between and their families. You're not there again to try and convert them to a particular persuasion. You're there to care for their emotional, spiritual wellness. Right. And that's the joy of the position. So I don't know if we've talked about it on a previous show. We may have. Um, I, I share this experience and tell this story frequently when I'm working with new supervisors. So the Pittsfield Police Department, um, and this, you know, I, I'm responsible for a small portion of this, but we actually have access to a lot of resources to provide assistance to our own personnel. And it can be as low Low 
threshold or low fidelity as our employee assistance program, our EAP, which may just be a phone call, right? It, it, it could just be, a, and our EAP is great because it's not just about, say, emotional health and wellness. It, they'll, they'll provide financial counseling, divorce counseling, substance abuse counseling. All of that stuff is available through the EAP. And if you call the EAP and it's not something that they can do right away, then they'll make a referral. And so you might find yourself referred to a social worker or to a therapist. And I, I think right now the initial call to our EAP includes five sessions. Mm-hmm. So you kind of, you know, uh, start with that. And so if the EAP is the entry point, then, you know, goes from there to our chaplains and we get some stuff with our co-responders and we have personnel who are trained in mental health first aid and we have personnel who are trained specifically in law enforcement suicide prevention. And it, it, it moves up right up to op- options that we have available for inpatient treatment for those personnel who might require it. And I, sh- I say this and I share this because it's one thing to know that we have those resources. It's another thing to be a supervisor or a commander at a crisis and be able to identify and access those resources. And I will say, I'm not going to say it's impossible. There may be somebody out there who can do it better than I've had the ability to do it. But we've talked about this. It, I frequently forget to make calls from the command post for chaplains. Right? I have to. It has to be on a checklist. Um, it's not in my. It's not in my wheelhouse. So a few years ago, uh, we had a member of the department that was in crisis. It was not actually a job-related crisis, and I needed to figure out what to do to get this person some help. And I couldn't do it. I was under stress and I was under tight time constraints and I couldn't do it. And so it, it eventually it happened, but it didn't happen easily. So the next day I went into the office and I cleared my calendar and I spent about three hours identifying all of those resources. And then we put them in one document called the continuum of care. And so we've been working and evolving that continuum of care for probably five or six years now. And uh, now it includes the co-responders and the therapy dog, and we've got other resources. (laughs) Um, And then fast forward after we developed the continuum of care, a couple of years go by. And now I take a call from another member of the department, another commander. They're trying to provide resources and counseling to another member in crisis. And they know we have the continuum of care, but they can't find it. Hmm. And so I got, um, and I, I, I pulled it up and I told them what the resources were and I sent them a link and then I got frustrated. So I called, uh, our IT specialist, Gary Munn, and I said, this is the document, all the hyperlinks are in here. I want this pushed out so that anytime anybody logs into one of our computers, it's there. I want a link to it and I want it there. So nobody's hunting for it when they need it. And so they dropped it on the desktop and that was an improvement. Um, but then, you know, it, probably two years ago now, was it two years we got Cortico, Matt? Year and a half, two years ago? Uh, at least. Um, we had the opportunity to partner with one of our technology providers to develop a wellness app. And when we were going through the pre-deployment with the wellness app, they asked us about specific local things. And we shared with them that we had the continuum of care. And they hadn't dealt with a client that had done that type of work to that point. So they embedded our continuum of care in the app. And now if you're on one of our government phones, our government issued phones, and you pull up our wellness app, 
that document with all of the phone numbers and all the hyperlinks is in there. Wow. So you can just grab it off of your phone. Uh, as you try to push it right out as close to where it's going to be needed. And um, over like the last 18 months, I've shared that document with numerous police chiefs and police supervisors. Um, because if you need that information, when, when you need that information is not the time that you want to be thinking about right. how to get that information. It's got to be accessible. So we're trying to do our best to make sure that our people know that there are resources available to them. And I think the most important part of this process and one of the reasons I've tried to expand the chaplaincy program is not only knowing what the resources are, but knowing that it's allowed yeah. to access them and ask for the help. Well, that's been the stigma for most of anybody who's been in the military or first responders career right. is, you know, oh, it's going to make me look bad. It's going to make me look weak. Uh, even a lot of the colonels and, and such during uh, Operation Iraqi Freedom were afraid that doing this warrior transition program that I designed and floating home with them would weaken my Marines. We found that by doing these kind of things, by providing these kind of services, allowing people to have resources like you're talking about, helps them stay mission ready. It's part of being resilient. It is. You know, we have the stereotypical police officer on TV. Right. Where did they go after shift? Right to the bar. To the <laughs> bar. Why were they at the bar? They're trying to decompress and self-medicate. Yeah, exactly. They would, you know, they're trying to numb out a little yep. bit, you know, alcohol, self-medicate, and decompress before they go home. Yep. Well, that wasn't the healthiest way to do it because, unfortunately, alcohol also brings other things into play. You're not thinking as clearly as you might. It's a depressant. Right. And if something upsets you at home, you might not respond the same way. And so by doing these or having other resources, the Taekwondo or the Jiu-Jitsu, Jiu -Jitsu, other things like that, going to the gym, uh, exercising here in the Berkshires, hiking in all these beautiful trails, getting out into nature, those are healthy ways to defuse, debrief, you know, chill out, you know, in the old it, acronym. In the... In my conversations with new police supervisors when doing some leadership development with them, the the, the buzzword, and I, I don't like it, but I don't have a better synonym for it, is normalize. To normalize these conversations. We have to talk about this type of work the same way we talk about physical fitness, equipment readiness, yeah. officer safety, we have to talk about it as frequently and with as much focus and import as we do about all of those other survival yeah. topics. Again, it's not, you know, there's that fear that I'm going to be considered a wimp or yeah. something. But it really isn't. If we, like you said, I don't care for the word normalize either, but if we just let it be part of the daily conversation, that they know, hey, this is something that happens in life. We're just dealing with it. It's no big deal. Get the help you need. Be there when you need it. Um, turn to the people so that you can be on your 100% game. game when you're on duty. I think one of the most important things I learned in my studies about trauma response and trauma mitigation is 
there there is a physiological and psychological response hardwired into the human body and the human body and brain based on exposure to danger and trauma. Sure. And that psychological and physiological response feels weird. And so, you know, I don't remember which textbook it was or which professor said it, but what you're experiencing is a normal reaction to a very abnormal situation. Exactly. And until you recognize that what's happening to you is supposed to happen, and that if you do some things like control your breathing, go through some mindfulness exercises, and then immediately diffuse it by talking to your brothers and sisters, that you'll come back to your normal. But it's not going to happen if you don't take proactive steps to make it happen. Right. What will then happen is you'll stay in this heightened state of hypervigilance until you self-medicate, and the next time it happens, the response will be worse, and you'll feel worse about being off baseline. Yeah. So you have to recognize that what's happening to you is supposed to happen right. and have tools to regulate it, and you can have a long, healthy career. Yeah, I mean... The average, I remember being a police officer going call to call from a baby not breathing. I'm yep. doing CPR, handing off to a paramedic. Then going to a traffic accident where uh, maybe an eight-year-old was hit on his bike from a car. Then going from that to you know, a bar fight. You're going from all these emotional stressors. Right. So it's normal to be in these abnormal well, situations for a police officer or fireman or whatever. There's there's a statistic out there and it's not there's I can't find a scientific study for the basis of this, but it's thrown around a lot in the first responder mental health community and it's it, and I'm doing this from memory, so but it's basically that for a normal for a normal for a civilian, for somebody who doesn't work in uniform service, they may be exposed to 7 to 9 traumatic incidents over the course of their lifetime. For a first responder, it's 800 over the course of their career. That makes sense. So it's it's just crazy. All right, we're coming up on the end of the hour. We like to wrap up on a happy note. This, this <laughs> last couple, uh, this last couple of minutes, it's gotten a little heavy. Yeah. Um, but so we like to wrap up with plans for the weekend. What are your plans for the weekend, Chaplain? I love being in the Berkshires. I've really enjoyed coming back to the Berkshires. So I enjoy getting out working in the yard i also enjoy doing the estate sales okay. meeting new people <laughs> my wife and i go we don't need anything you know but that's we, highly unusual after a lifetime in public service and law enforcement to want to be out meeting new people <laughs> well but as a chaplain that's yeah. you know you know I, yeah. I like being there or seeing people and meeting people but uh and then seeing new places new things and it's just kind of a fun hobby my wife and I do. So. Nice. Lieutenant, plans for the weekend? Taking a practical skills EMT test. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, that sounds fun. <laughs> Good luck with that. I know you've been working really hard to get ready for this. Uh, I do not want to jinx it because uh, I did. I jinxed it last week. Um, my training plans fell through the floor. Um, but my shoulder's feeling a lot better. The, the PT and the body work is is paying off, so I'm hoping I get significant mat time in tomorrow. 
Uh, got to do a little yard work as well. I don't think the weather's going to cooperate. And I don't know what prompted me to do this, but you know those weird little wind spinners that look like hot air balloons? They're all over the place where we go to the beach, and I love them. So I bought a set, and I'm going to see if I can put those on my house this weekend. Wow. <laughs> all right. You've been listening to Out Patrol with the PPD here on WTBR 9.7 FM, Pittsfield Community Radio and Pittsfield Community Television. I'm not sure that we'll be back next week with a new episode, but just in case, tune in. And uh, until then, be safe, be healthy, but most importantly, be kind. We're 10-8.